this week's VFX show. I'm Mike Seymour and a monster comes calling this week as we uh, look at what has become a remarkable kind of outside uh, VFX traditional kind of pipeline film that uh, has really caught the attention of a lot of people. It's moved slowly around the world from different markets and to talk to me about it uh, is Matt Wallen. How are you, Matt? I am very good. Thank you. And Mr. Jason Diamond. Uh, great. Yeah. So, guys, what did we think of Monster Calls? And were we kind of aware of it a, a, a lot in advance or did it kind of sneak up on you in a monstery kind of way? I'd say for me it kind of snuck up on me. It wasn't one that I was super aware of. I think I saw the trailer, but then uh, I'm going to tell you guys a little secret, which is I just watched it. <laughs> I just watched really? it when? just tonight. I just finished watching it like oh, really? 30 minutes okay. ago. I had a screener, so, a VES screener for, for it. And uh, I have to say, like, I, I mean, I don't want to sound too uh, soggy or sappy or anything, but I think it was like, it's it's like an almost perfect movie. I loved it. I thought it was so great. It was really moving, really powerful and totally unexpected. Yeah, I really wanted to do a VFX show about it because quite often we've had VFX shows that are talking about films that have been fun and impactful and whatever. But I wouldn't say that I was looking for the Kleenex. You know, it wasn't like I was really tugging at the heartstrings or I was feeling like, wow, this is really got um, heart and soul in it. Um, so I was happy to look at the film just because it had Sigourney Weaver in it. And I really like Sigourney and I thought, well, yeah, there you go, that's a good film. Um, but when I'd so seen it, I was like, oh, we've just got to discuss this because, wow, what an amazing use of visual effects. Totally. Um, Jason, what do you think? Oh, I, I agree a whole gajillion percent. I loved it front to back. Um, I was actually really excited for it because I, I don't know how or why, but whatever movies I had gone to months prior, I've seen that trailer a few times and uh, I was really, really, really excited for it. And then I totally forgot about it and when it was going to come out and then, and then you guys were like, let's do it. And I was like, oh, yes. <laughs> that day I ran out and saw it, which was like a few weeks ago now. And uh, I was blown away. I loved it. And also, you know, um, also, not to sound too soggy, but I actually just went through pretty much everything in that movie with my mother-in-law passed away from brain cancer in August. Oh, no. After 15 months of, uh, you know, sort of nightmare. So it hit very close to home. But what I loved about it was that while it was very, you know, direct in, you know, into that pain that it actually, the message was incredibly positive about like yeah. how to use that to move forward and be productive and not be drawn down by it, which I thought actually made the movie outside of the fact that it was a great film. The message like right at the end was like, oh, awesome. Like, you know, and, and I kind of knew that the spoiler alert, you know, we're going to start talking about the movie, but you know, when he kept saying, you know, you have to say your truth. I mean, it was fairly obvious what it was, but it didn't matter because you needed you. He's a kid. So, you know, you, you are OK with him taking time to get there. So I have no criticism of the film, but I will ask you this. Who do you think it was aimed at? Because honestly, if I played that to little ish kids or, you know, younger kids, I reckon it really upset them. Like what was the market for the film, do you reckon? I don't know. I mean, my kid saw the trailer with me and he was super excited to see it. Um, after seeing it myself, I'm kind of on the fence. I think he would actually really enjoy it, but it would also be incredibly, you know, painful having just oh, yeah. lost his grandmother. So it's, it's kind of like a, you know, it's a, it's a 50-50 in my mind. 
I mean, I just watched it just tonight with my wife and my son who just turned 13 in November. And like, he was like, ah, I don't really want to watch that. And I was like, oh, why don't you just watch the movie with us, you know, have some family time or whatever. <laughs> so we sat down and we watched <laughs> it and he, uh, and he, um, you know, he was totally hooked and he was into it and he was like, this movie's so sad. Oh God, this movie's so sad. But by the end of it, like, you know, he, he kind of like shed a tear or two, like, and you know, then he wanted to like hug mom and dad and it was, it was kind of cool. And I, I, I kind of feel like in a weird way, like, you know, everybody, you know, your own kid, but like, when is a kid ready for that kind of existential yeah. kind of movie, you know? <laughs> and it, who's, yeah, it, who's I mean, it marketed to? Like, I, I don't really know. Like, I mm-hmm. think it's a, I, that's kind of what I, I think is cool about it is that it's like, it's so unusual for a movie to deal with and tap into that kind of subject matter, but I can't help but feel like watching it. Like, it feels like it's, it's kind of important, you know, in a way, yeah. like, and it's, it's going into an area mm-hmm. that we don't often explore or creatively, artistically and culturally. We don't often talk about those kinds of issues and, and the way they used effects and, and the whole story and uh, the way it evolved and using the a child as sort of the, the centerpiece of the story to kind of deal with grief. I thought it was just, it was phenomenal. Well, I thought it was so really, really cool. Also the demonizing of the grandmother is like a classic, you know, a classic trope yeah. and to then humanize her and make them sort of, you know, understand each other's pain and, and have them both mm-hmm. be on a level field at the end, I thought was like really, really nice uh, touch. So I didn't think that there were any tricks in the film played on the audience. Like you were deliberately taken uh, sort of the wrong way. Like I thought the portrayal of the grandmother was a good example of that. Like they very clearly presented how he saw her and how he evolved seeing her. They didn't trick us with, oh, well, what we didn't see is when, you know, she left the room, she did the exact opposite kind of thing. We only discovered that later in a piece of exposition. So, you know, it did seem like she was not a good fit with him. And, oh, my God, I just leapt off the couch when we revealed the smashed uh, living room. Yeah. yeah. I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, and the clock, yeah, you know, and everything. Yeah, that was and that great was a really because you kind of didn't know if film. it was. Yeah, you didn't yeah. know if that was. I was kind of wondering if that was a like dream sequence initially. That's mm-hmm. the first time I think they kind of go into like you sort of say, okay, is this going to be something that actually happened or it did really happen? And I, I like that it did really happen. That he was just like you know, yeah, like if it had been shit. he, it looked like he'd done it and then he actually hadn't. That's the trick I'm talking yeah, about. That exactly. I would have felt like yeah, you just you're just playing with me now. So because they're being so I don't know how to say this, but it's almost like because they're being honest as filmmakers, I went, you know, went there with all the emotion. Like I didn't feel like I was being manipulated. And I think that's a real hallmark of a good film that you're just willing to say, I'm going to let my guard down and actually get in on this film because I don't think, like, you know, with horror films, I'm like, you're just rigging it to yeah. trick me, right? Yeah. So I'm not going there. You know, whereas in this film, I was like, oh, yeah, oh, no, yeah, I can, you know, because I just felt kind of that it was a, it was a good piece of filmmaking and they weren't going to suddenly pull the rug out from me and the whole thing was a dream or he was a terminal patient and, right. you know, the whole thing had been imagined and you'd be like, well, even the rip Even off. the dad character was really good. Like, you know, he mm. wants to be like, he wants to be connected and he wants to, but clearly his other family is, you know, he's moved on. Uh, and not that he doesn't, I mean, he clearly loves his kid, but that's not really the point. You know what I mean? Like he's and, doing and what he can. And it's completely reasonable like he, that he... Is the yeah, limit of his character. He may not have enough money to... To yeah. be there and just, you know, drop everything. I mean, I, I think that's feasible. Yeah. 
Um, um, and he can, didn't present as black or white either, did he? Yeah. Yeah. Can I can I just say that the thing I about from the filmmaking standpoint, the thing that I absolutely loved were the uh, transitions, both shot to totally. shot, scene to scene. Holy shit! This yeah. dude. What about that one with the puddle? Eh. Ugh. You know, the, when you're going I mean, the reflection in the water and yeah. you go upside down and then you're in the... Oh, my God. Somebody yeah. loved that cinematography. I mean, every, <laughs> every... It's almost every shot, like, to a point. And, and, but it's not overbearing. It's not heavy-handed. I mean, there's... Sometimes it's just camera movement that, that mm-hmm. connects a shot. And sometimes it's, like, a really clearly designed thing. But that director, I forgot his name, but clearly prepared... And he and his DP like went for it, and I myself am obsessed with transitions. So I just like about twenty minutes in the movie, I was just like, "Wait a second. And then I really started to pay attention to him, but it didn't take me out of the film because it was so like ingrained as the part of the language of the film. It wasn't just tricks that I was just like fell in love with it like immediately. And then obviously everything else is fantastic. So I was just like, this is, ah, oh, I came home and said to my wife, she's like, oh, you saw that? What, what, I was like, it's incredible. I love it. You know, like, it's an amazing well, film. For for a gift for you then, um, you know he's a Spanish director and yeah. did uh, some horror films. You know he's doing the next installment of Jurassic Park? Oh, really? Oh. I did not oh, know that. Yeah. Cool. Um, and I think that's really good because I think he's somebody that is obviously comfortable with visual effects and is not afraid to go there in terms of having massive visual effects sequences. Yeah. But they're not for gratuitous, you know, whatever. It's it's very much, as we always say, sort of heart of it, you know, serving the story. Hey, um, one thing I will say, and and I don't think it takes away from the film, but many people I've spoken to, when you refer to this film, kind of refer to it as like the feature film they must have come up with after they saw the, um, the sequence in uh, Deathly Hallows because the only other film that seems to be a reference point for those um, artistic, mm-hmm. um, I'm going to call them dreams, but let's agree what they are in a minute, um, seem to be that marvellous scene explaining the Deathly Hallows, uh, the animation that I think was done back in the day. Was it done by Frameworks originally? I know the new one, the one in this film was done by Glassworks, right? But um, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, like, yeah, like Explain yeah. the Deathly Hallows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, the Did three, you know, the three brothers or, or whatever. And yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I yeah, just I mean, watched the Deathly Hallows for the first time maybe a month ago. So, <laughs> yeah, those the sequences in this film where the monster is telling the the three stories, you know, it kind of shades of um, it, there's a little bit of shades of Dickens' Christmas Carol in there, but then there's also uh, clearly, you know, these kind of preparatory metaphorical aspects of the narrative that come into play later, and. I think uh, the, the stylistically, yep. they fall really closely in line with, um, from what I understand anyway, I haven't seen the original book, but I was, I was looking at it online just before we um, started the show tonight. But the, uh, the illustrator, Jim Kay, who illustrated the, the book, which was, the original book was this woman, uh, uh, Sioban, Sioban, uh, I, can, I don't know how you Siobhan, pronounce that first name, Siobhan, yeah, Siobhan Dowd. And uh, she was, she conceived of the whole book and wrote the novel while she was kind of going through her own terminal illness. And she passed away before she finished the book. She had written a treatment. And then uh, the guy who's the screenwriter, um, Patrick Ness, he picked up and finished the book with the illustrator, Jim Kay, who did all the illustrations. And I thought all the... Um, uh, 
uh, and then they they won. Uh, it says uh, they won the Carnegie Medal and a Greenaway Medal in 2012 for year's best children's literary uh, book or whatever. But um, and and then uh, Patrick Ness, who wrote the finished the book anyway, he wound up writing the screenplay. And I think there was an interview with him on the Q and A with. Uh, the one we, we reference sometimes with... Um, oh, was there? Oh, mm. shit. Yeah, with uh, Goldsmith. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah. The, the illustrations that I found online, anyway, they were all black and white, but the artistic style and sort of the, the mark making in terms of, you know, kind of that sort of illustrative aesthetic, it's very, very much like what they were doing in terms of the aesthetic that they achieved in the animation, um, although they went with color too, but it had that kind of real kind of um, dip pen or watercolor kind of aesthetic. And I thought it was just totally gorgeous work and just so cool and, and very reminiscent. I think you're right, Mike, of the um, the three brothers uh, from the Harry Potter film. Can I? Yeah, I'm right. It was Framestore that did the Deathly Hallows. We have a story about it if uh, anyone wants to look it up. So it's Framestore Deathly Hallows animation. It was in 2010 on FX Guide and that's telling the story of that. Um, the new one, as I say, was done by Glassworks in Barcelona. Um, and so they're not related in the sense of I'm not saying they're the same people, but what I'm saying is that they uh, figuratively or, you know, in terms of stylistically reminded me of each other. And in both cases, I felt they were tremendously powerful ways to communicate sort of an abstract story. Totally. Without getting to a point where I felt like, well, we've just got mega exposition here and I'm kind of let me get back to the movie. Um, well, and, and I think, sorry, go on. Oh, go on. No, go on. I was going to say, and I think that the the way that they did it, um, the way that uh, Glassworks did it, was basically to use a combination of 2D and 3D. And by 2D, I mean they actually filmed bits of ink, um, you know, shot out with uh, with syringes and in blotting paper, and then they sort of took a lot of 2D elements into a 3D world. So clearly there was a lot of 3D in the film, mm -hmm. in these sequences I'm talking about right now. Um, and then uh, the stories that are in the film, in other words, these um, stories that are told by the monster... Uh, are in fact slightly different stylistically as you work your way through them. But the monster himself outside of those stories, to be clear, is MPC. And uh, MPC did a really good job. So we're going to discuss, we can, let's stay discussing those animated peaches, but I just want to make sure everyone's clear that we're talking about um, those being done by Glassworks and then the actual, the, the monster that obviously is not real, but that is sort of away from the, the uh, sort of artistically drawn um, stories uh, was done by MPC in London. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, I loved the animation. It, there was no, not a single piece or bit of it that looked out of place or wrong or 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 even a corner cut. I mean, it's somebody loved every you know frame of that uh, making that. But what I really liked in the beginning was like a like a real proper title sequence that you know a lot of movies don't do anymore i think i feel like the title sequences become like the guitar solo of uh independent <laughs> film, you know what i mean like they sort of have gone away a little bit and i liked that the but perhaps not as much as the sax solo sure well songs. yeah no kenny g on this one but uh yeah hey hey uh, there were a lot of bands that had good sax maybe a little kenny coltrane g, my friend. yeah a little coltrane uh i would i would actually put this way closer to coltrane than uh, anything else but the um, I liked that the title sequence, which seemed somewhat arbitrary and just like, oh, right, there's going to be pen and ink and like, let's bring it in. And then at the end, you realize that the opening title sequence is really her, the mom's drawing book. Yeah. 
uh, like I was yeah. just like, yes, <laughs> like in the very end, I was like, oh, thank you, like thank you for like just making it even better, like when everything just ties up a little nicely at the end, and like and completely like it's not like it's even featured or like highlighted. It's just sort of like you just get it, mm-hmm. and. It's a lovely bookend without sort of saying, hey, bookend, um, yeah. you know, it doesn't need to because the audience is aware. And also, even if the audience wasn't explicitly aware, I think you're just implicitly aware of that uh, connection. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, it's the uh, ultimate. Yeah. I think this movie proves like the point that treating the audience with respect and and acknowledging their intelligence pays off because... I got to say though, you know... Was, I, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Jason. Oh, I was I just going to say like there's very little exposition and the exposition is you know, appropriate when used. And obviously the parables are not exposition because their story as related to things that happen later. So like, you know, at no point did they pander to the audience really in any way. Yeah, I'd agree. And I, you know, the, as we're talking about it and then I'm thinking about what you asked at the outset, Mike, cause I think that's a really interesting question. Um, who is this movie for? <laughs> and I got to say, the more we talk about it the, and the more I'm kind of sitting with it, this might sound a little uh, surprising, but I, I think this is a movie for kids. Like it's super heavy, but I think it's a movie for kids in the vein of a movie like the kinds of movies you don't see much anymore, but in the vein of a movie like Old Yeller. Yeah, I was just going to say Old Yeller. You know, it's that yeah. same kind of story in a way. Like it's a really serious movie and a serious movie dealing with an extremely serious subject, but it's told from the point of view of a kid. And I think it's a kid's story. I think it's made for kids like to like kind of talk. It's like terms of endearment for kids. Yeah, and to, and for, to help kids kind of maybe deal with and talk about and kind of be maybe cognizant of, you know, really serious subject matter in that regard. Um, I don't know. I saw a documentary on, and this is going to seem like I'm completely going a rat hole, but there is a point to this. I saw a documentary on Sesame Street and um, it was, you know, usual kind of rundown of the way they did it. And they got to a point where, um, I'm going to say Mr. Hooper died, uh, who's the actor that played one of the characters on Sesame Street. Anyway, they did an episode where they tried to explain to Big Bird that um, he was dead, right? And they decided not to pull any punches and actually do that, right? And then try and explain because the persona of Big Bird is meant to be like... Um, they've got a very specific age. Let's say it's five. Um, so they got, you know, child psychologists and people to sort of say, okay, well, this is how much a five-year-old understands. Let's say it's four, whatever the age is. Mm-hmm. This is how much they understand about death and this is, you know, a good way of doing it. Now, what I found really interesting about that is that after it had gone to air, apparently I was just flooded with letters of people saying thank you because, you know, obviously parents have to deal with grandparents and people passing away. And for a lot of people, there just is no touch point of any kind of cultural reference to this to discuss or even to use. Sure. And it never even occurred to me that a program like Sesame Street, you know, has this kind of um, almost, not, it's not educational, but it's almost sort of like a, a uh, facilitating role to help um, navigate some really troubled emotional waters. And I'm not saying for a second this film was made for that reason, but, you know, in the right circumstances, maybe it could be incredibly um, pertinent to helping a parent, a grandparent uh, passing away kind of thing happen with someone. And maybe not at the age that this child is at, but whatever it is, I can't help but think there must be people that were viewing it. The only thing I would say is I wouldn't want want to stumble on this film with somebody who had just lost a parent recently and not know what I was going in for because it's 
dynamite. Like, yeah. Breaking, and I don't mean that in a bad way. Well, and it's, it's PG-13 too, which is kind of yeah. key to note, you know, and I think it's got to be PG-13, you know, at least in the United States, it's PG-13. And I think the, the reasoning behind that has got to be that it's dealing with, you know, serious subject matter. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, mean I maybe it's say, potentially scary in places, but it's not really scary. I don't think in so much as uh, the the peril with regards to, you know, the monster. I think it's more just. I think the subject matter is scary. Yeah, I mean, I would say the PG thirteen is probably more for subject matter. Just you know, like, hey, by the way, this is kind of heavy. But you know, to your Sesame Street point, I you know, my brother and I do a lot of work with Sesame Street, and and they do absolutely on staff have child development psychologists, you know, uh, educators, you know, of all ilk, um, constantly checking and fact checking the content. I mean, that is what the content is for. And so there, it is, it is a direct sort of mandate that the content function at the level it's supposed to for whichever age, child, whatever it's, you know, targeted at. I mean, we've done, we've done content with them that's dealt with everything from what to do when the power goes out to your parents are getting divorced to, um, you know, children with disabilities and, mm-hmm. you know, all that kind of stuff beyond just the random like, hey, I'm Elmo, come play with me, you know, for fun <laughs> stuff, which they also do, right? So I I'd mean, completely forgotten that you'd done that work with Sesame Street. I was, yeah, sorry, of yeah. course you have and I apologize, but... Yeah. No, no, it's, 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 I, you know, I've, I've always been fascinated by how, you know, right out of the gate, even when Henson started it in the late 60s or early 70s, I mean, it was deliberately made with educators at the backbone to make it exactly what you're, what you said you thought it should be. I mean, it is a yeah. teaching tool, one million percent. And that's why, not to go on my own little rat hole, but that's why, you know, Sesame Street's such a nonprofit. And so, they sell all the toys, which seems egregious, but actually what they do is when Tickle Me Elmo blew up and they, they made gajillions of dollars on toys, they take all that money back in-house and they use it to create the uh, multi-language versions to go around the world uh, because those PBS, there's no PBS in France or mm-hmm. Russia or right. wherever they output it. So, you know, it's a true, you know, cyclical process to keep getting that content out around the world, which, I, you know, I'm pretty impressed with actually... Mm. Yeah, no. And, and of course, it just highlights, doesn't it, like the complexity of the filmmaking that we're even having this discussion about it. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's finish what we started in terms of just these um, sequences that were laid up with the uh, ink and stuff. Both, you know, you mentioned the, the title sequence, which kind of relates in, of course, but the, those main sequences. Um, I always find these to be really uh, mesmerizing and really one of those sort of times where you can actually say to yourself, well, I wonder how they did that. How would I do that? If they had not given that brief, how would I do it? And um, and I thought they handled it really well. I do like that it was more than just 2D. Like obviously there's some real benefits in having the 3D stuff. And um, they borrowed the monster asset for the, was it the second or third one, the monster appeared, from uh, MPC. They modified it a little. But generally speaking, um, those stories were engaging <clears throat> and worked well in their own right. But it's a, it's a hard thing to not lose the audience because you've kind of gone off into this thing. And as I said before, I didn't have that. Okay, let's get back to the main story. I want to highlight something to the kid. Um, do you reckon we're going to see more of this? I mean, how applicable is that kind of stuff? We've mentioned two films that have it. 
Um, would a whole feature work that way, for example, Matt? Oh, I think so. I mean, I, I don't know. Like, I, I you know, the, the, the program at uh, the university I teach in, like, uh, the primary focus is uh, drawing. Drawing is the fundamental base of everything that uh, we do. And then we extrapolate out into thinking about drawing um, both in traditional media, but then also starting to think about drawing um, you know, in the, in the digital realm and even, you know, 3d as drawing. And so we kind of approach everything from that kind of primacy. And, um, I don't know, I, I watch stuff like this and I think, God, you know, uh, there are so many, uh, really gifted, you know, concept designers, uh, artists, illustrators whose work is just so gorgeous. And it's so often that we take that work in the world of, uh, cinema and visual effects. And we take the work that's done by, um, you know, whoever it might be, you know, got people from, you know, the illustrator of this book to somebody like Craig Mullins, um, uh, you know, goodbrush.com, right. Or, uh, you know, any great, uh, designer Sid Mead or whatever. And we take those designs and we turn them into 3d assets and render them, you know, photorealistically or semi stylistically, um, you know, digitally in the, in the computer. And I think there's an amazing, um, opportunity, um, that we're seeing in films like this. And in the sequence we mentioned in the Harry Potter film, um, to take, uh, or even you know, looking at uh, the other film Kubo and the Two Strings that's nominated for visual effects too, which has kind of a hybridization of a, a very stylized aesthetic. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunities to create and use uh, digital technology, 3D uh, visual effects to create things that we haven't quite seen before that have a, a very heavy handed sort of um, particular kind of artist aesthetic. Uh, and, and I think that that would be really cool. That's the kind of stuff that um, when you see it, it feels so fresh. It feels really new. It feels really different. It doesn't feel like, you know, Transformers five or something, you know, it's, it's exciting. I think to see people get really creative uh, with the medium. Yeah, that film has gone very well, hasn't it? And it's been nominated in both categories of visual effects and animated feature, which is a, mm -hmm. an extraordinary uh, accomplishment. There are other films that I guess sort of paved the way to that. I'm thinking of, um, uh, what's the, um, uh, gosh, yeah, the, oh, I'm completely blanking. Um, the stop motion film that was done by Burton. Um, Nightmare Before oh, Christmas? Uh, yeah. Yeah which I think had a, a mm -hmm. nomination in visual effects. Though I, I think I, somebody said to me recently that it wasn't actually, uh, there wasn't a category for full animated feature back then when, when that went through. But um, I mean, it was in that sense of an animated film that was nominated for visual effects. But yeah, it's a, I think it's an extraordinary um, accomplishment to come up with these stylized films. I don't know if it's me or not, but I used to, I used to prefer kind of more realistic stuff because the stylized stuff always seemed to be kind of a bit of a cop-out. Um, but there's some terrific work being done um, in, uh, in this sort of very stylized sense. And maybe it's because we can go so far in realism that now stepping back and, and picking where to place your style... Um, yeah, I think, I, think the, I think the choice, like the, the stylization itself is, in, is important. You know, like I think, uh, and this, it's subjective to some degree, but... Um, without question, but it's, it's like, um, uh, if, if you look at a lot of really talented, the work of many talented illustrators, right. Or designers, um, who are creating 
traditional or even digital, like still images, but with a highly stylized aesthetic. Like one, one, the really popular one right now is that uh, guy Simon Stallenhog. I don't know if you guys are familiar with his work, but he's created a couple books and he does these kind of um, semi-photo real uh, paintings and illustrations with these sci-fi characters in them. He's a Swedish uh, artist and his stuff's really kind of popular right now. It's really interesting work. But um, I think if some of the things that I've seen in the past, like in the early days of, you know, CG uh, and, and CG visual effects, the ability to achieve an aesthetic that maintained a certain kind of um, like brush stroke or, or like, um, you know, mark making, uh, it wasn't quite there. I think the first time you really saw it was in, um, the film, what dreams may come, right? I think it was with the Mm -hmm. Ron Williams where they really tried to do visual effects with a very, very heavy handed artistic. And they were going for something that was very painterly. Right. But I think now you're starting to see much more of this kind of illustrative aesthetic. And even in this film, right. A lot of it kind of looks like ink or watercolors or something like, I think you were describing Mike. And I think that's, it's different. It's a different look. It's a different aesthetic. And I think it has a greater fidelity um, as the technologies progressed and sort of the technical abilities have gotten yeah. better. I think it's, it's gotten more sophisticated aesthetically. Can I add the red turtle to that discussion? Mm, yeah, totally. Because that's a, you know, an amazingly animated piece that is, that is an exercise in simplicity. Um, though in many respects, you know, again, not a lot of dialogue, but just a hauntingly complex film. Um, and, you know, if you were to look at a frame of that film, certainly if I'd looked at it a while ago, I'd think, oh, this is a Saturday morning cartoon, right? They just don't have enough, you know, the characters don't have enough developed stuff in terms of texturing and shading that, you know, shading tends to be very on or off and <coughs> blah, 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 completely misrepresenting the film because it's like absolutely not that. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, look at a still and you're not going, well, that's great. Um, but it's a it's a really elegant film, very stylized, but not stylized in a, in the same sense that we've been talking about the films now. And of course, another film that's uh, got a lot of attention in the last week because it's been nominated. And it's Dutch director, I think you guys would probably know, Dutch animator, I think, behind the Red Turtle. But anyway, um, yeah. So I, again, another film stylized and just well, very emotive. With then you could you could even so. go to like music videos and that when that first <coughs> Gnarls, Gnarls Barkley video came out, crazy. I mean, that was all you know, more of a compositing thing, but it was all ink, you know, overlaid ink um, mats and things with their faces in like pseudo Rorschach and then and then ink blots and other things like that. Um, yep. But I would echo Matt's statement about Kubo. I thought Kubo was is actually on par with this. I thought that movie was amazing <laughs> and it has the same message. It's just more of a fantastical... Um, message of him remembering, you know, that his parents actually have passed and and what have you. But um, I think, you know, that had some some really great stylized animation. Even though it's stop motion, they do a fair bit of CG alongside the stop motion. And uh, I actually think that enhances the stop motion instead of having to, like, figure out how to do it all in camera. Um, I, I like the hybrid nature of it. Um, so I don't know exactly where I was going with that, but I, I just, oh, I mean, I agree with you. Saying yeah, that I just loved Kubo so much when I saw it. But. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was a really good, uh, it was a really good film. So, okay. So let's get back to our one. So can I shift gears now and talk about away from the sequences that I'm 
been calling these kind of dream sequences. Um, it's a fairly dubious line, but I'm going to use it because I don't have much else to go with. Um, back to what I'm going to call the more realistic in the sense of there's a 3D monster in the physical world of space of the boy and it's not in that kind of ink-drawn style. Um, I don't want to call that, but obviously it's not portrayed that there is an actual monster, but for the purposes of our discussion, let's call it the real world. Um, what do we think of their design solution for a tree-based, I guess, uh, monster slash character? Uh, I mean, Matt, did you did you respond to the tree? I mean, I, you know, I thought he had a very special set of skills. No, um, I thought <laughs> I thought he uh, I, I thought it was good. I mean, it, you know, it's it's design wise, like it was hard to look at and not think of Groot. I think um, just initially, it was it had a very kind of Groot aesthetic to it. But then, you know, I thought they did a nice job with um, some of the, pardon me, the uh, the special. Um, kind of uh, features they gave him where he would he would have these kind of glowing kind of embers uh, inside the kind of gnarled, twisted kind of roots and bark-like components that made up his, his feet and legs and arms. I think he was... Um, he wasn't very scary, right? Uh, he was he was kind of cool looking, and he had he certainly seemed to have power and strength, but he didn't seem to be, you know, overall uh, too frightening. And I don't know. I thought it it worked for what it was supposed to be like, and I thought it always looked, um, you know. The lighting I thought was really great on it, and it always looked like it was really integrated well into the scene. The composites were really well done. Um, I never saw one that really jumped out at me as not looking um, correct. It looked like they really took their time in getting um, you know the the appropriate uh, elements dialed in just right within each scene, within each shot. Um, but yeah, design wise, like you know, I mean, it's cool. Like it's it didn't blow me away or anything, but I think it was it was nice. I thought there were just there were occasionally a couple shots where the lighting I thought was was really great. Um, yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. I initially thought Groot, and then sort of more Treebeard. Yeah, um, that's a good one too. But you also it's it's slightly misleading the title because he's not really a monster. The kid's never really afraid afraid of him. Um, he's just sort of like, what? Like, what are you doing here? You know, if I remember correctly, Matt, you just saw it hours mm -hmm. ago, but yeah, yeah. Um, which I kind of liked because it gave the kids strength, um, that he needed as a character to, 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 for you to think that he could exist on his own, you know, but I, I loved the tree cause he looked like a tree. You know I mean, like, I don't think you needed more than what they did, which I kind of like, you know, kind of lent a simplicity. And that simplicity certainly is a very understated word for the amount of work and everything that went into the tree. But the, I'm, I was most uh, shocked by how good the comps were, like mm -hmm. you were saying, but also the lighting. Like when he was in the house, in the room after it's destroyed, and then that there's a ceiling light, lamp that's like yeah. right next to his head. Yep. Oh my god! I was just like, turned to my friend Scott, and I was like, "Look at the light! Like it's like it's almost distractingly good." Well, yeah, the light—it's like it had like the light had like a really tight focus on yeah. that one edge of his head, and so it it portrayed yeah. both the accurate lighting in the scene, but it also portrayed an a really accurate sense of scale in that the yeah. the monster was the really large. Off, yeah, like, it was so yeah. well done. I totally agree. 
and then outside. Well, I was thinking that you were going for the lighting. Outside. Yeah, no, that, that lighting was all good. But I actually thought that it was remarkable to have him work so well in the cafeteria because now you're in a completely different space. Right. Um, and so, you know, all the tricks you can get away with when he's sort of coming up at night in that sort of opening sequence and um, when he's sort of in a natural setting, suddenly he becomes, he could become, didn't, could become absurd when in a school cafeteria, right? Like there's a tree in the middle of the room and it's running. <laughs> what? <laughs> Um, and I got to say, like, like with Groot, I'm like in awe of how they can pull off things that seem to me on paper to be absurdly stupid. And I don't mean that in a nasty way. It's just like, honestly, if you told me I want this tree to run up the middle of the hall of the cafeteria, I'd be like, what? <laughs> Please don't make me work on that shot. And it's interesting. I remember Stu Mashowitz went to me about a shot he was looking at of um, in Die Hard because, you know, he watched Die Hard like about 100,000 times that guy. <laughs> Stu's a great guy. But he, he happened to be looking at the, the, in the uh, equipment room um, at the shot when it was being processed. Uh, and it's the shot where, um, you know, he goes on the kind of uh, test uh, shoot thing that uh, shoots across the, like it's a railway track and then he pulls the button and it explodes and he shoots up and there's a shot where where um, he comes right up to frame. Mm. And oh, the parachute parachute yeah, when he ejects right. from yeah. the plane. Yeah. 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 Okay, and so it's a <laughs> scene where, you know, the camera has to be within six inches in the perfect place with the perfect focus, you know, and everything, blah, blah, blah. And Stu was like, had said, turned to somebody and said, God, I'm so glad I didn't work on that shot because it's almost impossible to make that look real because it's so artificially perfect. Mm-hmm. And of course, right. he happened to say that while the director was standing behind him. So <laughs> it's a funny story. If I'm telling it right, I'm maybe it was a few years ago when Stuart was telling me, but it's that thing, right, where like you can do exactly the shot, but if it's an absurd proposition in the first place, it's just really hard to pull off. You know, and if it's a perfect camera in a perfect point and there's just like no way to hide it, you know, if you've got wobble cam and somebody's running down the street kind of thing um, and yeah. it's a normal real street and it's very gritty, then it works so much more in your favour than you, than one might think it would if you're not in visual effects. And so here I was like, oh, this could just be ludicrously like odd. And it was like he was a attacking wolf or something. I don't know what it was, but I, I thought that was the lighting you want to go for because it just seemed to sit in there so well. Yeah, I mean, perfect is never is not always the achievement, right? I mean, there's no, things aren't always perfect you kind of want to find the the perfect version of imperfect uh when you can because uh, i think that sort of helps things out i mean like look at district nine i mean mm-hmm. you know the way the bugs sat in in the those just bare daylight scenes you know i mean like you, you could get really crazy with it or you could just sit it in there and and find the just find the hole uh, yeah, everything shouldn't be shot at Magicka. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, too, another really nice uh, effect that they did in this film that, like, it's, again, it's, you know, I don't know that there's, aside from the stylistic things we already discussed, I don't know that there's anything that's, like, super mind-blowingly groundbreaking visual effects-wise, but I did like the um, in the nightmare sequence uh, that's sort of repeated over and over again. I thought the destruction of the church... Yeah. Um, was really cool. Mm. And what was cool about the way they did the the destruction was that as the uh, the sort of the earth kind of opens up, right, and there's kind of this like hole, like almost like a sinkhole <laughs> that's part of uh, sort of the, the sequence, the church collapses and it collapses in, in pieces. So it doesn't 
it's not like a wholesale like collapse where there's almost no structure underneath. It sort of breaks apart into like three or four primary pieces as it starts to break up. And I thought that that was kind of kind of it looked more believable almost in terms of a, an old building like that, an old stone building and starting to, yeah. to crumble and fall apart because it was as if, you know, there's still all these timbers and, you know, elements in there that are holding parts of it together. And so as it collapses, it's sort of, it's very imperfect and kind of clumsy in its collapse. And I thought that that was actually a really well-designed um, shot and the aesthetic of it was... Um, really believable and real, and it and it conveyed a sense of scale too that I thought was was really great. Well, also because when you see like you know sort of rundown, you know really like ancient European structures, they they're like half built still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like they have. And you that. see that also, don't you? With um, like uh, I'm going to say like in a Second World War type level, yeah. Um, when something's been bombed, and that you'll get like the front of a building that's gone. Yeah, that's that was well observed. Uh, Matt, because I, I hadn't even thought about that, but yeah, it really served its purpose well, didn't it? Yeah, it was, it was smartly smartly designed as a shot. I thought whoever was yeah. sort of supervising that sequence or you know artists working on that, I thought it was really well executed. Can I also point out that this is a forty million dollar movie? Mm. I mean, that's which fairly astounding for the amount of and quality of work that went into the movie given today's budgetary standards. Uh, I mean, I happen to think that's quite a bit of money, but when you have like uh, enormous VFX sequences mm-hmm. and a very, a very well made film on all levels, like there was not a corner cut for that 40 mil, at least, at least in the final product didn't come out that way. I'm sure they were very yeah. uh, crafty in certain things they had to do, but. So let me just correct something I said earlier. I said it was MHC out of London. I, I apologize. That was because I was talking to the London team to get um, stuff for an FX guide story, which we've got on the film. Uh, it was actually MPC Montreal that mm-hmm. did the, the work and they did about 180 shots. Um, and so 180 shots is not, you know, like the whole shot count because, of course, it excludes all the stuff that we're talking about with the um, what I've been referring to as the dream sequence, the painterly stuff. Nevertheless, um, you know, it felt like more than that for me. It uh, it felt like that there had been that you know wasn't you know sometimes with the film you feel like okay well, they really have a budget to do everything here so they're going to hold it out and then just deliver it you know in whenever they sort of can and spend their money wisely but this didn't feel like it was lacking did it it just felt like well you know if there was a need for a scene there was I totally agree and you know one of the things I it's been a while since I heard it so I I listened to the the um, podcast with uh, the the writer of the book and the screenwriter prior to uh, watching the movie t- tonight. Um, and uh, one of the things that was so interesting is if, if, I'm, if memory serves, I believe he talked about at one point in the discussion, they were talking about the visual effects and about the aesthetic and how it really had a really believable look to it. And it, it really, everything worked well together. They were sort of commenting on it in the way that we might. And uh, the the writer said that one of the things that was, he, he mentioned, he said, he told a story and he said, do you ever hear people talk about how like you go back and look, and I know we've said this too, you go back and look at the first Jurassic Park movie and it still holds up today, <laughs> you know? And uh, the guy was like, yeah, yeah. And uh, they were talking about how, 
you know, one of the reasons it holds up still today is they took so much time to make those shots because they were kind of breaking new ground, right? And there were so few shots too, in a way, because that's all they could actually do in the time they had. And one of the things he said that he thought one of the reasons the effects work so well in this movie, and it kind of speaks to what you're saying, Mike, is he said that they actually had a really long schedule, um, on the show, like that it was, uh, it wasn't rushed. They weren't doing this as like a quick, dirty turnaround, a 911 job. And I don't know that that's true, but anecdotally, it was really interesting. Um, and, and that's interesting to think about, like if you actually did have, you know, real time to kind of, um, massage some of the shots to get them to look, you know, a certain way, it'd be interesting to find out if that was accurate or not, but it was, uh, I don't know, it sort of connects to what you were describing. But we do say that, don't we? We say that, um, you know, you can have it quick, you can have it cheap, or you can have it great, and you can only have two of the three. Right. And I don't think that that, which is obviously somewhat of a cliched statement, yeah. but I don't think that's actually changed. I mean, I think yeah. that is true. And I think that it's um, the case that if you're given the opportunity to craft a film versus having to get into it before you've even got the script finalised and you don't even know what the third act's going to be like and... You know, then you get all these things where you go, okay, I don't know if we can need this asset again, whatever it is, the church, whatever. Mm-hmm. Maybe they'll change it and I have to be in the church and so I need to make it super high res. So I spent a lot of time and energy there. Oh, we didn't need that. All right, well, never mind, didn't know kind of thing. Point is for every one of those kind of, you know, sensible uh, decisions that someone makes because things aren't well thought through, right. somebody else doesn't have time to just sit around and kind of ponder a shot and get it right. Um or you even do, as we know, entire sequences that just get cut from the film because the filmmaker just kind of didn't have it uh, in their head clear enough, and sure. so they wouldn't. They saw it that they uh, <laughs> they did it. So, I I think there's no greater gift you can give a VFX team than to give them time yeah, to uh, yeah. with the material. Well, I, I would argue that that holds true for every department. I mean, in our last <laughs> show when we did Arrival, the screenwriter said that he. You know, it took him five years to get the movie made. And over those five years, he made, you know, on his own sort of rumination on the script, would go home and, and change entire scenes and write things. And and now, obviously, every script shouldn't go through that process. But, you know, in his case, that those five years gave him the time to really sit the script where it needed to be. Um, I would... I would uh, argue the other that would say that you know the the converse of that is like suicide squad where david ayer gets hired and they're like you have six weeks to write the movie and prep it because we have a release (laughs) schedule with all our marketing dates so get moving and that movie was terrible so suicide squad (laughs) but you know what i mean like um, obviously yeah no i think you're right but you know i like i mean at least it wasn't scott pilgrim Uh, Um, oh (laughs) (laughs) Uh, an oldie but a goodie (laughs) Um, yeah, no, I agree. And and there's no sense that this film wasn't sort of crafted. I've got to say the other thing is, it, you know, don't you just need time to ponder the audience's perspective? Because, of course, you know everything right. in the film, right? Like you know what's going on in real life. So you have to ponder, and I use that word kind of to indicate, sit around and think about it over a fair amount of time. Okay, at this point, what does the audience know? And how much should I be revealing? And how much should I assume that they're going to get? Because mm-hmm. I think there are occasions when there are jumps that are too big for the audience where it's like, what? Oh, somebody had to explain to me later that that was the, the you know, whatever, the father or whatever it is. And then there are other times when it's like, yeah, obviously we got that. You know, you're just kind of spelling it out. And I feel like those decisions 
take a lot of time to understand not just from the writer's <coughs> point of view of the intricacies of the story, but how a, a non-aware audience is going to work their way into the material. And, uh, and I think that shows a lot when you can telegraph where the film is going. And I didn't really feel like, I know you were saying that the, the secret like was pretty obvious, but I didn't feel like the way this was all going to play out was pretty obvious. Um, you know, like it didn't feel like, okay, clearly the grandmother's going to drive and find him and rush him back and she'll mm. still be no. alive at the last second. No, I mean, I think it's um, tonal. I think there's tonal stuff yep. you can pick up on that you say, okay, I'm pretty sure this is going to happen. But what I liked about this movie is it, it never made you feel like you had to guess what was going to happen. Like you were you were treated very well in the first act. So you were like, okay, I'm going to, I'm not going to try and figure this out. I'm going to sit back because I trust you. So similarly to what Duncan Jones did in Moon, you know, little tricks mm. to just sort of say, okay, I trust, I, I, I understand you. It's like the director came over to your seat and gave you a little hug and a pat on the back. And he's like, I, I, you're smart. It's okay. I know you're smart and I know you're going to emotionally handle this. So let me, let me tell you a story. And you're like, okay, cool. No problem, dude. You know, like, and that kind of respect, I think, uh, you know, goes a long way. When I was just at Sundance uh, a couple of days ago, I ran into a friend of mine who had seen, you know, a film, I won't name the film, but you know, um, it was akin to Groundhog's Day was the film and she was saying that you know the thing is is in groundhog's day the audience doesn't know what bill murray needs to change uh Mm. and why he's where he is and you go along the ride with him in that and sometimes it's horrifyingly depressing and sometimes it's funny and eventually you learn things he learns and whatnot and it works and in this movie that she had seen which had a groundhog's day type element she said within like 20 minutes, you knew exactly what the character needed to change, but the character never did. And so you're mm-hmm. just frustrated and you can see the, the writers writing themselves. You could see the script being written like, OK, then we'll, we'll, we'll dodge it over here and then we'll dodge it over here. And up, oh, we're almost at it. But then we're going to do. And it's like the audience just hates you because you're like, well, dude, what are you doing? Your character's an idiot and we see every all your tricks. So you're not respecting me. Um, and I, th- I think that's, you know, it's kind of a big thing. That's an insanely interesting concept, isn't it? This idea of having to have this relationship with a notional audience member when, of course, millions of people in the good world are going to see your film, right? Um, and so you're gonna, you have to almost sort of visualise this one representative audience member as kind of indicative of your vast audience and say, well, I'm going to treat you with respect. And, and I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's what I was saying earlier. Like I was totally there because I didn't think they were going to fool me and they, I felt like, um, and, you know, your reference of Moon, I love that because I think that's exactly what Moon did and I, I think that film is just one of my all-time favourite films. Hey, I mean, you mentioned Sundance. How, how was Sundance? Oh, it was great. It was all VR, VR, VR everywhere. Hmm. Um, I, I've been do you think that's because of money or do you think that's because of, of material that was actually uh, promising? I think it's and- both. I think there are sponsors who want to, you know, put properties on Main Street for for VR exhibition and sponsors who want to be a part of like an emerging technology. But I also think that there's a lot of VR content being made and that and that stems from, you know, just, you know, goggle based uh, storytelling to experiential stuff with uh, the life of us that that uh, Annapurna and and. Uh, within did 
there where you're actually playing a game, you know, becoming you two people start as like an, a single celled organism and you sort of work your way up to being a, mon- a fish and then a monkey and then, you know, uh, you find a dinosaur and then you're a person and you become a robot and then a sentient kind of like light or whatever. <laughs> um, and, you know, so it runs the gamut of, you know, my friend uh, Winslow Porter and Militia uh, did a piece called Tree where you are a tree and you experience what it's like to have your arm chopped off, you know, your limbs chopped off and all these kinds of things. Um, and you have controllers in your hand where you're doing things, you know, the touch controllers and uh, Oculus stuff. So I think, you know, there's a lot of people doing a lot of interesting work to, you know, move the medium forward. Uh, some of it's good, some of it's not good. Uh, I would say the largest problem with VR and film festivals right now is just uh, exhibition. Yeah. Because my my friend was saying, you know, he can only show 500 people the thing in uh, in the week that he's there, but there's like, you know, 40,000 people coming through the festival. Right. Uh, and so it's that's not been solved yet. That's probably the biggest Thing I think that needs attention is uh, well, it's a great way to pass out. pink eye around too, right? If everybody, well, that's the other thing. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, uh, that's, uh, Jim Godoldick was there with me, and he said, uh, and I said, I said, oh, have you seen any VR stuff yet? And he's like, no, I don't want to get pink eye. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> so can I? And can I, true, I mean, it's a hygienic thing is a, is a whole separate issue. But yeah, go ahead. I, I was just going to ask because I mean, because you are shooting a lot of stuff, and I'm I'm doing a 360 video class, and we're doing a bunch of stuff with students and experimenting around. Like, and I, I, this is the second semester I've taught this class now, and I'm kind of curious because I know you're doing a lot of like really high end, kind of more professional work, like. I don't know if you can answer this honestly. Are you a true believer? Do you think this has like got legs? Um, I do. I think we're in the sort of the, the throes of rebirth. If you, if I can use some esoteric, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, birth, death or death, uh, rebirth narratives. Um, I think everyone needs to allow all their preconceptions of, "Quote unquote cinema and and the cinematic language needs mm-hmm. to die in your brain totally uh, as a creator <laughs> uh, until you realize that VR has no codified visual language and that you need to approach it completely differently. Now, now that doesn't mean you let go everything you know uh, if you're a traditional filmmaker coming into VR filmmaking, which is how I'm approaching it. Mm-hmm. Um, you still have a frame." even though they call it frameless, you know, the frameless gaze or whatever. But, you know, the the goggles have a field of view. So that is your frame, right? It's like 108 degrees if you have the, or nine or whatever it is, if you yeah. have the, the HTC or the Oculus, that's your frame. That is a composable frame. And you can stand on set, and if you cup your hands around your eyes just outside your eyeballs, that's about 110 degrees. So when we shoot, we put our hands over our face like idiots and stand next to the camera and like pretend we're watching the content we're about to make mm-hmm. and look at how far my body has to move, how much my head has to move. Like, again, respecting the audience and saying, well, I'm not going to give you an aerobics class watching my piece, you know. <laughs> uh, have you, and, have and, you guys and, done stuff uh, or have you seen stuff at maybe at Sundance this year? Like, are there people doing things in... VR or using uh, 360 
uh, video to tell multiple stories simultaneously so that you can sort of watch one or turn around and watch the other? I haven't, I haven't seen that yet. And actually, I mean, I'm sure they exist. There's yeah. a lot of content being made. It just so seems like a really natural thing. No, like I've been having the students in that class, like they're doing an exercise yeah. at the very beginning of the semester, they all get a theta, you know, and we yep. send them out with the theta and say, Hey, okay, here's 29 standard cinematic uh, like conventions. And we mm-hmm. want you to try four takes like experimenting, you know, with each of these 29 conventional kind of shots. And inevitably, which is kind of the intent, right? They come back and like, you know, it's like, well, none of them really work, right? (laughs) You know, some of them (laughs) kind of work, but, but that's kind of the idea too, is like, all right, well, so what does that mean? Like in terms of establishing and setting up a new language for shooting in this way. And one of the things that at least I keep coming back to with the students is this idea of, you know, the potential for multiple narratives, like that you could tell multiple narratives simultaneously, given that you're capturing, you know, two different fields and you could, you know, with, you know, different, uh, multi-channel audio, you could direct, you know, one's attention and you could even look for ways to weave those narratives together. I was just curious if you'd seen anything quite like that yet. Cause it's, it still seems so like, you know, in this raw experimental kind of stage right now yeah well i mean you know certain shots are limited by the technology right like you can't get super close to some rigs some rigs you can like you know back-to-back cameras obviously are much easier to get closer to Mm -hmm. um but you know your typical you know super close or over you know over the shoulders can still work i think it's more of maybe a slightly open over the shoulder but Mm -hmm. you know you it's more about what you like and we do and and i'm a proponent of editing in vr i have no issue editing narrative or commercial content in vr i think editing is crucial to vr uh for certain things and other things want to be these long sort of more staged blocked uh things obviously you're blocking and editing too but um I think, you know, you're, whenever we do a narrative, I'm always trying to think of secondary and tertiary action and story because I, as a viewer, want to watch, sometimes want to watch things multiple times. Totally. And I'm actually obsessed with like looped narratives myself. Like, yeah. I would love to make a film that sort of ends where it starts, but not mm-hmm. as a intentional loop, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so if someone were, let's just, for example, having a conversation, and the the main action would be to turn around to see the action that's being alluded to behind you. Well, I've, you in my mind, you would need to give that you know actor who is you're looking at some secondary action, whether it's after 20 seconds, you after you give your beat, 20 seconds, get up and walk out of the room, or do something else, so that when someone watches it the second time and says, "Well, okay, I know what happens back there. I want to see what this guy does." Yeah, like you kind of have to think at least two or three steps beyond what you would normally think about on a cut unless you're cutting obviously, but you know, um, you know, I, I try, I, I tend to think about that stuff and now there's a danger of getting into a choose your own adventure thing, which I think is good, but at the same time, you don't want that to be the sort of gimmick of VR that, right. you know, Hey, well the viewer can do everything. So let them control it. Yeah. I think you can yeah, yeah. still control the narrative and that's, you know, like what Did Spielberg you- said at Cannes, I think I think it was a stupid statement myself, <laughs> where he was, and especially since he's the he's the advisor to a company called the VR Company. Uh, you know, he said, "I'm not. I, I really don't know about." And he's making Ready Player One, but he said, "You know, I don't know about VR because you know, as a director, I want to control the you know the 
the gaze of the you know I want to control what the viewer sees and and that's my that's my job and if if the viewer can look anywhere then I've sort of lost my control I'm paraphrasing yeah but, but my argument is you still have to keep your audience engaged with you know uh, I don't know I think I might have, I've I've said this many times so I may have already said it on one of these podcasts but um, if the audience isn't engaged you're not engaged it doesn't matter that they can look around. Right. Um, you know, people in a movie theater pull out their cell phones all the time. Clearly, they're not engaged. You know, I mean, you're home watching TV. You pause it and get popcorn. You're clearly not engaged, right? So I don't think it's a matter of the medium. I think you have to respect the, the modes of the medium and use it in a proper way to keep the audience engaged in the story. Um, I, I don't see an issue with it. I, I understand people's reticence to it, and I, don't, I agree it's not for everybody. Uh, I'm not saying that as an elitist or thinking I'm, you know, better than somebody else for for liking it or wanting to do it. But, you know, some people are attuned to some things and some people aren't. <laughs> well, it's not for people who only question? see out of one eye, for example. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, yes, yes. I want to ask you a question. Did you see the um, Felix and Paul film Mayubi? I think it's called. Um, it's that you know really quite long narrative. Oh, uh, forty minute. A forty minute. No, I didn't get in to see that. I wanted to see that, but I had friends that looks who saw really it. interesting. I had friends yeah. who saw What'd it and said that they could they they were easily. It was the longest VR experience they'd ever done, and they and it, it went by very smoothly. And they didn't like they were like I, I had no issues with it. Like I didn't feel fatigued. I didn't feel outside of the content. You know, obviously that's the that's the common or the current fear is that you know people get fatigued within you know ten minutes. Uh, have, you, have you heard about this, Matt? No, I haven't even heard of it. It's um, so we're going to do a story on it on FX Guide, but it's not out yet. So you had to be at Sundance, which is why I was asking. You know, Felix and Paul Studios do a lot of VR work, and mm-hmm. they did this forty-minute piece. And as as you know, we're, we're hearing from Jason, which is exactly what I've heard, which is that it's one of the most remarkable pieces because after four or five minutes, you don't want to take off the headset and go, okay, got it. You know, how much longer do I have to stay in here? Um, and it's not a shoot 'em up. It's a you know, you play the role as it were, of a robot um, in, a, in a 1980s uh, family. Oh, right, um, right, right, right. Yeah. That kind of uh, <laughs> unwraps you effectively. And, um, and so for a year of that family's life, you are in their space, as it were. Um, and I haven't seen it, so I, uh, that's why I was asking. I've heard really good things about it, but that's what intrigued me the most because as I'm sure you're aware, Jason, like a lot of people with VR who are developing VR take the straps off their headgear because they don't expect to keep it on long enough that they yeah. can't just hold it to their <laughs> face. Um, and and that's a big deal, right, that, you know, you just isn't that engaging that you just want to stay there. Yeah. Uh, now, there are some experiences I've had that are not like that. Um, oh, yeah. But they've mainly been shoot 'em up games and, and things that kind of what's happy to be immersed in and doing stuff. But um, you know, I've not seen a narrative piece that was that's done that to me. Two two of the pieces I did see that I actually um, were... were uh, one of them was made by a friend of mine, but um, one was... They were both uh, jaunt pieces. Um, one was called Through You, and it was like a really super arty, uh, like interpretive dance narrative. Um, and... They did a lot of camera movement. You know, they did the Mantis like Rover, and while not every shot works, I think it's a really good piece to illustrate that camera movement can work and can be really effective. Um, 
I think a lot of people shy away from camera movement in VR. I love camera movement when it's properly done, uh, but sort of like anything else. I mean, you know, uh, you know, people move the, you know, you look at, you look at like, uh, you know, Magnolia, you know, the camera's moving nonstop. And then you look at, um, there will be blood in the cameras or the master and the camera's locked. And it's just these tableau type things like it, when it needs to happen, it needs to happen when it doesn't, it can be too much. Um, and then alongside of that was uh, Under the Canopy, which my friend Celine uh, Tricart did with Patrick Megan at Jaunt. And they went to the Amazon for a month, uh, actually with my friend Gary also, who was the grip. And they did like um, cable cam and drones and pulley systems and like all this kind of stuff, you know, locking the camera to a boat, uh, like a big canoe that these dudes were, you know, natives were you know rowing down the river um and every part of that camera movement was incredibly necessary to tell that story um you know you feel like you're moving through the amazon you don't feel like you're just like stuck in these places looking around you know and then like teleported somewhere else and looking around so um I, you know i think that i think that what you were saying, Matt, about like what shots work and what shots don't and the mm-hmm. visual language thing is I think there are shots that I think it's completely contextual, much like most filmmaking, but in this case, even more. Um, I think that there are contexts with which shots will work that you may never be able to pull off again uh, or at least in the same way uh, because of where they fall in a narrative or whatever story you're telling, uh, be it journalistic or fantastical or whatever. Um, I really feel like it's contextual um, more so than traditional filmmaking. Yeah. The other thing I keep coming back to too, that I think would be really interesting to try in that format too, would be an interactive experience of a theatrical performance. So, you know, traditionally in theater, right, you sit in the audience and you watch the performance, you know, through the proscenium arch, right. That sort of uh, Mm -hmm. sits on the outskirts of the theater Mm -hmm. um, on the stage. And it would be really interesting to think about placing uh, multiple kind of hidden 360 or, you know, 180 or what, you know, whatever uh, rigs um, in the environment where you could sort of, um, you know, be on stage and experience the performance in a different way. Now it would, it would mitigate then the performance of the actor. They wouldn't be projecting out to the theatrical audience, but they would almost have to be conscious of the presence of those cameras too, but it could create a different kind of immersive experience of a theatrical performance too, where you could choose where you wanted to watch the scene from, which could be really interesting. Yeah. I mean, we've, you know, we've done we've done um, VR pieces with performers, and depending on where the camera is, we tell them, "Hey, you're not on a stage. This is a person. Like, right? A person will have the headset on, and totally. this, they will be standing right here. <laughs> so you need to go up to them and play to them. Yeah, you know I mean, it's just a camera. It's just this ball with giant eyes, you know. But like, yep. you know, this is a person, and I think it's important to when in direction and just prep, like understanding when the camera's a person and when it's subjective and when it's subjective. But also, you know, um, we did a piece with the Rockettes where we were on stage at Radio City while they were doing their Christmas spectacular dance. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there were parts of the numbers where we said, you know, play out forward. And then, you know, they do their ring dance, you know, where they're all sort of arms around and they're standing in a ring. And we're like, okay, now play to that camera, you know, like. 
Well, yeah, or like the classic sort of Busby Berkeley style shot where like, you yeah. know, you have the dancers and they're sort of standing yeah, yeah. You know, legs or their legs apart and you're passing through, you know, the tunnel right. underneath the legs or whatever. Like it's yeah. a crazy VR shot to you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I might just swing the conversation back to a monster's call, even yeah. though it's a terrific mm. rat hole. But there's bound to be someone who right now is yelling like, Come on. iPhone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What? Sorry. What are you guys doing? But it is a, a really interesting discussion. And, and, and I think, you know, as I say, I'm, I'm really interested to follow up on it myself on what it takes to be immersive and what those new rules of cinema actually are. <clears throat> I mean, you know, obviously there are some things you can't do in value, literally because it'll make people sick. Um, but there are some things that you maybe should or shouldn't do, just in the same way that crossing the line is not a hard and fast rule, but it's a good one for, mm-hmm. for a, a filmmaker learning their craft to, uh, to understand. I don't know we're probably there yet on those rules, but certainly that's a, a great chat for another time and maybe we'll soon end up with a VFX show discussing a VR movie and maybe uh, this one from um, uh, Felix and Paul is the one to do. I don't know, but let's... Um, Let's table that for a second and just getting back to the film. We, we, we do normally like to just find out, was there anything in the film, um, talking now about a monster's call, anything you didn't like? I mean, was there anything that you felt fell flat given that it's obviously not a, you know. I had one shot, hmm. only mm-hmm. one, and it's super minor. But when it's at the end when he, he's, the monster's holding the kid and he puts him down on the ground, it cuts to this sort of high, wide, over his over the monster's shoulder but like really high because he's big and he sets the kid down and the kid's clearly a digital double and it's just just when he he like leaps out of the monster's hands and it's he hits the ground for maybe like half a second and then it cuts to the back down to the ground to the looking back reverse but there was just like just that little physics-y kind of thing from the digital double when he jumps out of the hand that i was just caught my eye for two seconds uh it was so minor but other than that, uh, I had nothing. I had no issues with any other shots personally. I, I guess for me, the was maybe it was a conscious decision, but um, some of the shots looking up at the tree on the hill were a little too art directed for my taste. Mm. Um, and I didn't think they needed to be at that point because you're going to have these very rich art directed scenes. They were kind of, um, and I really say that because. The, um, the richness of the colour palette of the what I've been calling the, uh, the dream sequences are so rich that I feel like you could have contrasted it more when he's looking up at the tree on the hill uh, next to the church um, that, you know, we're meant to believe was just actually there and, and his mother, you know, his favourite tree. I think that could have looked a little less perfect, a little less art-directed and that would have helped the story. Um, it wasn't that it looked wrong so much as it just looked too kind of pretty. But uh, Matt? Yeah, I mean, there wasn't, uh, you know, there weren't any shots that really jumped out at me as being uh, problematic at all. I I don't really have too many negative things to say, if any, about the film. I, I was thinking about something we were talking about before our our, our long uh, tangent there, uh, where we were talking about sort of the honesty of the the movie overall. And the thing I I, I was thinking of at the moment was um, I really did like when uh, he finally. Uh, shares his, uh, the monster gets him to share his truth. And his truth is not what I thought he was going to say, not the nightmare, but when he shares his truth about how he just wanted it to be over. And I thought that that was really cool because um, it was so not what I was expecting in a weird way. I mean, it made perfect sense from an emotional point of view, but I thought that that was also um, 
like it had a profundity of like clearly someone who'd lived through that type of experience, um, something that you would probably really honestly feel, but then also maybe feel guilty for feeling, you know, which I thought was really cool. But from an effects standpoint, I thought effects wise, like, I mean, I don't know. I just thought it all worked really well. Um, I don't know. It was, I didn't see anything that, um, yeah, not, not the, there was nothing like, uh, things that I might sort of nitpick in other projects that just didn't, I, and I thought the, there was a magical, you know, this expression, magical realism. And so even that shot you're describing, Mike, of the tree up on the hill, like, yeah, it was really art directed and stylized, but I kind of felt like the whole film, it, yeah. it, it felt like it was sort of like a, one or two steps away from being real. It always felt a little fantastical to me. It never really felt grounded in a, a firm, true reality. It always had a bit of a, it, like a, a storybook or maybe kind of almost a memory, you know, like a memory kind of feeling where it's mm-hmm. something that's being remembered. And so there was kind of this, uh, this luster or haze or almost like a, I don't think it was shot this way, but almost like a, a kind of pro misty kind of vibe to it, you know? Well, it's also that you're seeing you're you realize at the end that you're seeing the tree through the kid's eyes. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. And you realize that that's their tree and the whole thing. Um, but what you were saying about what his truth was, I connected with that a lot because I had that actual conversation with my wife. She was so distraught, you know, towards the end of what her mother was going through that, you know, she admitted that like I, I just the same ex- literally almost word for word like I this needs to be over for both yeah. for her and for me. Well, yeah, and it's it just got to be you know, so feel exhausting. Terrible and, to say that, but like, but like you know, but you also want somebody's pain to end too. You know, exactly. So it's like, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's no fault on either side of that statement. That's you know, it's it's one of the one times you can have a selfish kind of thought, and it's sure. okay. You know what I mean? And so I. I connected with that even more. And I, I was kind of glad that that was the thing because especially for kids, like I think as we were saying earlier that, that this may very well be a, you know, a kid's movie, that that is something, you know, like addressing the, and, and being okay with the anger and hurt, you know, the, the multitude of emotions that come along are all okay and also all necessary. Yeah. It felt like you know, it avoided those emotions are, it avoided cliche and like went for yeah. truth, you know, and that was pretty, yeah. pretty punk in a way. Yeah. Well, also because they're sort of sidelining you subconsciously by calling it his truth. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. sort of like setting you up for it to feel like, okay, well, whatever he's going to say is going to be his honest emotion. So it's kind of, it's kind of a trick, uh, but in a good way. You yeah. Know I mean? Yeah. Like totally. Just prepping yeah. you for whatever he's going to say, but it's, but it's, it's the right way to do it because you almost need to sort of couch that his emotions <laughs> in some validation container for lack of a better term. So that when he says it, you're like, okay, this big giant sort of adult thing is saying whatever he's going to say is going to be the right thing. You know what I mean, totally. Yeah, I'm just, I'm, yeah, really I'm nice chuckling because Mike, Mike, because Mike asked if there's anything I didn't like, and I, I came up with something I, I, I liked also. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I yeah. couldn't think of anything I really didn't like, but yeah, I've got to say, like there, there are deeper issues there that I don't need the film to explore. But like you know, the central assumption in Western society that someone living as long as they possibly can to the last possible second is the best way yeah. forward. 
isn't one that I necessarily agree with. It's an incredibly um, dangerous uh, path to discuss or go down. I understand all that. But, you know, there are times that uh, someone in pain continuing to, quote, be alive, um, they're not living. And uh, so, you know, you get into that kind of space. But look, um, thanks so much for sharing that because uh, obviously, you know, this I didn't realise it was going to hit so close to home um, uh, with you and, you know, certainly didn't mean to prey on your family situation, Jason, but I do appreciate you sharing that with us. Uh, so thank you so much. No, I mean, I'm glad, I'm almost glad that I'm able to relate back what the film actually was trying to do by literally being you know, unfortunately one of the people it can directly speak to. So like it just made me actually love it that much more that it Mm. not only gave a powerful message, but respected the people who were going through it without pandering even on yet another level of respecting the audience. So like, that's why I was just like, I think even more uh, overwhelmed with how much I really enjoyed the movie. Yeah. Um, so look, uh, we're going to wind up the show there, but Jason, where can people follow up on the work that you're doing, especially uh, since you've been talking about the VR work, they might want to uh, connect with you over that. Uh, our, my company with my brother and a few other people, uh, superspherevr.com. And as always on Facebook, you can follow all my ridiculous political rants because that's sort of all I'm doing now on Facebook. <laughs> and Matt, where... Sorry, I'm just laughing because before we started recording, dear audience member, um, these guys were like, you know, very, um, how can I put this, gun shy over me making uh, political <laughs> comments to them. And I, I didn't say a word. Um, but obviously uh, I'm speaking to these guys on Australia Day. So that's our national holiday. And, hey, uh, happy Australia Day. From, Yay. Thank you. We've been out uh, down at Manly where everyone's been sitting around the water drinking beer and um, having barbecues and uh, Ooh, nice. enjoying family time. So uh, I'm going to go out and get in the pool. Nice. And, uh, but, yes, you're facing a slightly different both political and, and dare I say it, uh, climate winter. Hey, um, Matt, where can people follow you if they want to? Uh, uh, check in well, I'm going through my own uh, deep existential crisis with the current political situation in my own country and I'm living deep underground in a bunker. Uh, I can be found uh, there. <laughs> no, okay, no, I'm I'm uh, Matt Wallen, uh, Doc Matt Wallen on Twitter, and uh, I'm at VCU School of the Arts, and uh, you know I was at the uh, Women's uh, March in Washington uh, with my wife and son uh, last Saturday, which was awesome, and um, yeah, you know I, I loved everything about that march, other than the fact it was necessary. Yeah, here, here. Yeah, I'll be out there in the streets uh, fighting the good fight for, uh, yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but anyway, we don't want to get the show overtly political. Um, <laughs> obviously, someone voted for the bugger. Um, but anyway, Matt, thanks so much for being with us. Obviously, I'm Mike Seymour uh, on Twitter. And of course, we've, as I said, got stories probably out by the time you re- uh, listen to this on uh, this film in terms of NPCs, facial animation stuff I've been doing. A lot of work with facial animation stuff, so there's um, more stuff coming, including uh, we've got the lowdown on exactly what happened with uh, Tarkin and the actual pipeline for the detailed work of the ILM face pipeline, which has taken me forever to get, but I finally cracked it. And I say that meaning like I've been researching this for two years to try and understand some of the uh, nuances of how ILM do its stuff. And I feel like I've finally got to a position I can write that up. So cool. I'm looking forward to publishing that. I'm also, of course, got the stuff, as I say, on Monster Calls with uh, their face pipeline on the, um, the tree. 
Uh, and we've got a bunch of other stuff coming up. And there's some really good films uh, coming as well, which we're looking forward to. And uh, some really interesting films will also... Um, uh, sorry, some interesting TV programs will also allow us to explore some of the work that's been doing in episodic television uh, as we like to do. Of course, the Oscar nominees have been announced and uh, I don't think that Todd is going to do his uh, predictinator this year. So I'm going to have to probably call on our illustrious team of VFX experts to offer their opinions. Um, but we'll do that in the next show. All that coming up here on the VFX show over at FX Guide. Thanks so much, guys, for being with us. We really enjoy uh, talking to you. Thank you so much. Until next time, I'm Mike Simmel. See you. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright FX Guide, LLC.